Just a quick reminder that I do now have a second podcast called Track Nerds, where I have guests on to discuss travel, exercise, and movies and TV. Check it out. Okay, enjoy the show. So the, this uh, movie came out in 1981, directed by Peter Weir. It is, uh, it's an Australian movie, uh, and it follows Frank and Archibald. Archibald is a runner. And uh, he wants to enlist in the light horse, the Australian light horse, which is a, a cavalry unit because he wants to go. He wants to go fight in World War One. Frank initially doesn't want to. He just wants to go to Perth and pursue business interests. But uh, <laughs> kind of the thing that that changes his mind is when they uh, when they're traveling to Perth and uh, they stop at this farmhouse and Archie says he's going to join the light horse and the family and more importantly, the cute daughter and the family are all very impressed that he's going to be a light horse soldier. And uh, so that kind of changes Frank's mind. So they both decide to enlist. Frank does not know how to ride a horse, though. So he ends up in the infantry and gets sent to Egypt with his uh, his three or four buddies, where during a training exercise, he ends up meeting Archie. And they both become, basically with Archie's recommendation to his commander, they both become runners for messages. Because uh, this is in the time before wireless communication. So this was still, you know, if you wanted to use a field phone to talk from one end of the trench to the other, that wire had to actually be intact. And one of the main ways that the enemy was able to disrupt um, your movements or, you know, your communications is by cutting those wires. And so they needed runners to run back and forth. And so since these two guys are very fast runners, they both got the job. They end up making a a landing in the uh, Gallipoli campaign. And I thought that this was kind of interesting where they're showing the basically like you have the trench and, you know, if you go above the trench or walk out on either side, you know, you're going to get lit up by machine guns from the Turks that are there. But kind of if you just go a little bit behind the trench down on the beach, it's completely fine. I mean, there's still the errant artillery shell that will come flying in, but like they're swimming. They were like, you know, just hanging out on the beach. True, right. Um, I thought that was kind of, kind of cool. But um, yeah, and then the 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 movie basically works its way up to the the main battle where there is a uh, well. Archie is initially told that he's not going to have to do the charge because he's going to be the runner, and he tells. The he basically gives Frank his spot. He goes to their commander and tells tells their commander that he wants Frank to be the runner that day instead of him because he knows that if Frank is the runner, he won't have to participate in actual uh, charge. And then Frank is running messages back and forth and is and is actually uh, kind of trying to do his own little part to stop wave after wave of Australian forces from being sent out of the trench to basically die five yards down the road because it's, you know, they're, they're, it's trench warfare. So the, the Turks are completely uh, entrenched. They have machine guns and every wave um, is just immediately cut down. And so Frank is, uh, he goes to the, his boss's boss, and then he goes to his boss's boss's boss and eventually gets the word, Hey, let's, you know, we're, we're going to kind of regroup and, uh, and maybe maybe think about what we're doing here. And uh, so he's uh, running with that message back to their commander to basically tell him to call off the the final charge. But he's not fast enough and uh, doesn't quite make it. And uh, 
Archie and the rest of his comrades end up getting killed in that final wave. And a few notes as everything kind of comes back to, to memory there. So it wasn't just that they were like, you know, struggling in this campaign. It was like beyond futile. Like we, so we sent yes. up the first wave and they are all killed and we killed none of the enemy. Send the second wave and they are all killed and we killed none of the enemy. Like it was completely futile. Right. And when I say, when I said five yards, Number one, that wasn't an exaggeration. Right. I mean, the dudes were making it five yards, and that was the guys that were making it the furthest. Right. And basically, there's it's the whole British thing of just follow, we got to follow orders, though. We got to follow orders. If we all 100% of us die the moment we stick our heads up in this trench, doesn't matter because that's the order, which ties to what you were saying. With that, was right. why Frank was like go, trying to go above and, and say, like, we need a new order. Yeah. And the, uh, and there, there's shots where they're sitting in the trenches. And, you know, they're, they're drinking water, smoking a cigarette, writing letters. And there are literally, like, feet, like, hanging over the edge of the trench of their dead buddies who got shot before they even made it all the way out of the trench. But there's nothing they can do about it. Oh, is this the one they're even, like, they're, like, they're like frantically writing letters and, like, hiding them real quick so they'll be found because they know they're going to die in, like, 30 seconds? Yeah, they're, uh, and oh. they, uh, they show them, uh, they show a lot of the guys will take their, uh, their bayonets and stab them into the sandbags and the wall of the trench yeah, and yeah. then hang like a wedding ring or like their rosary or a, you know, a letter or something on it. And then, yeah, right before they, they go to get out of the trench, there's all these knives in the wall with all the stuff hanging on it of all the guys that are about to jump out of the trench to certain death. I mean, they 100% know they're not going to make it to the Turkish trench. And I, I keep saying Turkish, the guys that they're fighting are, they're from modern day uh, Turkey. I, I think they refer to them as Turks in the movie because they're ethnically Turkish, but the the actual country they're fighting is the Ottoman Empire. Yes, and we, we will get to that. <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit briefly about the so the, the running subplot. So, yeah, we kind of meet our Archie as he's he is a runner, and I think he even goes to the, the town there to kind of challenge the other local fast guy in a race. And then, of course, Frank ends up being a pretty quick runner, too, and not as quick as Archie, though. And that ends up being kind of even a subplot throughout the movie is that Archie is faster than Frank. They're both fast, but Archie's faster. Yeah, and I, I thought it was kind of uh, interesting from a just a, a kind of a, a track nerd standpoint, if you will, <laughs> that uh, – uh, Archie is a he's a sprinter like his event is the it's the 100 right the 100 meter dash or probably well yard I would imagine yes or is it probably yards back 100 years ago yeah. right right oh yeah because he says he runs it in under nine seconds and yeah, yeah, yeah. he's he's fast but he's not Usain Bolt fast right so he's a he's a sprinter like in his event but the very first time we see him run he runs a barefoot cross-country race in the desert against a guy on a horse oh right and and wins right <laughs> due to a technicality because the guy fell off his horse but still he beat that guy yes <laughs> I, I was going to talk about too how the how the uh the fact that archie is faster than frank ends up being a plot point with the whole idea that archie wants to give frank the job as the runner so archie can participate kind of a point of pride also kind of pr to protect frank who's his buddy but then when frank's running these messages back right. and forth and they get the word frank, frank yeah is, frank is in a bad way the day before the battle, he's drinking. He's, you know, very clearly freaking out over the fact that he's going to have to uh, to fight in this battle. But he's not obviously going to say anything to Archie because he wants to, you know, he doesn't want to be seen as a coward. He wants to, you know, be there with his friend. Right. So basically the relationship between these two friends and the fact that they kind of both what's what's best for each other. And then the fact that Frank just is seconds late 
to getting the message relayed that would cancel that last charge that killed everybody, including Archie, if they had just done it the other way and Frank was prepared to fight and Archie was running, the idea is that Archie would have been just that little bit faster and would have saved all their lives. And the fact that they switched roles is what caused the deaths of everyone there. Now, so this event... The, the battle itself is accurate. This did happen, but these two characters are invented, I believe. And so this is a little running subplot. It's just kind of something they threw yes. in for the movie. But this battle is a historical event. So the name of the movie is Gallipoli, and it's obviously the Gallipoli refers to the Gallipoli campaign of World War One, which is where they're fighting in the movie, which it, it was, you know, this this huge campaign in the uh, the, the Dardanelles area of of Turkey basically to kind of gain um, the allies were trying to gain access to the Black Sea or not the is it the Black Sea yeah yeah let me actually I'm gonna gonna, gonna, let me let me spell (laughs) yeah it is the Black Sea yeah let me spell that uh, geography a little bit before so we've so we've been here before we've talked about uh and I I can't remember off the top of my head which uh which movies we've dealt to this part of the world before but so Istanbul slash Constantinople Super, super important to this part of the world. So we talked about the Black Sea when we were looking at Battleship Potemkin. And Odessa is kind of on the north end of that that we dealt with in Battleship Potemkin. And then in the southwest corner of the Black Sea is Istanbul. But then it's actually kind of this... Istanbul is just in this perfect spot, both both economically and strategically from a military standpoint. And you have uh, what we've talked about before, the the Sea of, of Marmara that connects the Black Sea to the Aegean Sea and then into the Mediterranean. But then there's these two little straits. So on the one side by Istanbul, you have... The Bosporus Strait. Yes, the Bosporus is over by Istanbul. So then the Dardanelles connect on the other side. And Gallipoli is just kind of the name of this peninsula on the north side of the Dardanelles with kind of Anatolia slash, you know, modern Turkey on the south side of it. So it's just this small little stretch... Uh, of water with uh, Gallipoli being the water on on the north side. So what the Allies, I guess, because so this is again all during World War One, and you know, these are both kind of just uh, just kind of a you know proxy battle going on here. Russia is an ally to uh, Britain and France during this stage of of World War One, and they were trying to get a foothold to, to get to the Black Sea to help uh, provide relief to Russia. So they need to get control of Gallipoli to get control of the Dardanelles to get through the Sea of Marmara up to Istanbul into the Black Sea, where they basically can open up this supply line to Russia and. This uh, right. this Gallipoli campaign was, and again, the movie kind of hints at it, if it doesn't straight up say, you know, bluntly, a huge disaster for the 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 British side, and the Ottomans yeah. uh, won. So I mean, it, it was it, it, over a course of about eight yeah, months. Yeah. So the the Gallipoli campaign is a is a major victory for the Ottoman Empire uh, in World War One. I. I mean, it's yeah, it was it was crushing defeat. Uh, for the Brits and the the uh, the Australians and the New Zealanders who was there who were there, but it's kind of remembered not necessarily fondly uh, in Australia, but like the somberly, somberly be the way maybe to re- they remember yeah, it. So yeah, the, the day the day of the landing on the uh, on the peninsula, which is the twenty fifth of April, is now it's uh, it's called Anzac Day in in Australia and New Zealand, and it's basically their Memorial Day. Yes. 
the British was, you know, the main reason they were there. But then as kind of subsidiaries, the, the Brits and in, in New Zealand forces ended up being kind of the main forces recruited for this particular part of the British cause in World War yeah. One. And did you see what Anzac actually meant? Yeah, it's uh, Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. Army Corps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's an acronym. Yes. But yeah, so but that's that's the day that they I mean, even like they're, you know, fallen service members from subsequent wars they remember them all on anzac day like we do with memorial day yes absolutely and then then the flip side is so we're nearing the actually the end of the ottoman empire not during this campaign obviously but by the end of world war one the ottoman empire will cease to exist but even then turkey today kind of looks back on this as the other side this is like the last hurrah of the ottoman empire and a point of pride in Turkey today. So this is a very, very pivotal moment for a lot of uh, people throughout the world. Yeah. And I guess the uh, the the very first that well, the, the founder and the president of Turkey, Kemal Ataturk, he w- was one of the commanders on the Ottoman side of this conflict. And then basically, after the Ottoman Empire was kind of defeated in World War One, kind of formed the basis for Turkey to kind of start its own war of independence. And then this guy who, uh, you know, had this war experience from World War One ended up becoming the, the first president of Turkey, basically Turkish George Washington. So, yeah, it's a it's a very a lot of uh, moving parts in world history all kind of coming together here. And then, you know, it definitely had a, a an impact even even to today. And since we are in World War One, we're kind of bounced all, all over here a little bit. But uh, I wanted to mention just the larger context here, since we are talking about World War One, and and it is one where a lot of people kind of roughly know that you kind of just and it, and it is what you remember from school essentially, where at the end of the 19th century, just a lot of Europe and and the surrounding areas were just there was a lot of these alliances like well hey. If, if anybody bothers you, we got your back. And then, you know, then two other countries made the same deal. So, yes, when the, you know, Austrian Archduke, was it, off the top of my head, it's Franz Ferdinand, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what was assassinated. So, Austria is now mad at Serbia and ultimately mobilizes against them. But then Russia's like, well, hey, we got Serbia's back. And it just kind of escalates with everybody declaring war and everybody else's buddies. And basically, it's just, it just becomes, you know, what starts as a, uh, I mean, obviously, it's a big deal that the guy got assassinated, but this shouldn't necessarily precipitated a literal world war. And, but but that is exactly what happened. And so the, the two sides that you have against each other were very similar to what we saw in World War II, where one side is France, Russia, and Britain, and the other side is Germany, uh, Germany Austria, and Italy. And there's actually, at the beginning of the movie, uh, when Frank and Archie are going through the desert to try and get to Perth, and uh, they come across the guy with the camel, and uh, they're trying to explain to him like why World War One is happening. Oh, um, I thought that was kind of a uh, an interesting scene when you know, and he's like, you know, oh, we're we're going to fight in the uh, the Gallipoli campaign. He says, where's that? He goes, oh, it's in it's in Turkey. He goes, well, why are you fighting them? He goes, well, they're buddies with the Germans. You know, it's like trying to explain to this guy who's probably like never been out. So, well, actually, I. I think he says that he's never, you know, been out of the the outback in his entire life. But trying to explain to him the complex geopolitical situation that is World War One, that they honestly probably didn't even understand all that well themselves. But 
they're basically fighting for their country. They and they they say, oh well, you know, if we don't if we don't go fight them in Turkey, we're maybe we'll have to fight them in in Australia, and we don't want to have to do that, so we're gonna go fight them in Turkey. Yeah, it's uh, war, war sucks. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just, and, yeah, just, but yeah, just how it, it's just kind of people going to war for a point of pride. And, and I think that's the decided if difference. I mean, spoiler alert to World War II, but, uh, you know, you know <laughs> World War II, it was like, okay, it, you had this severe aggressor trying to conquer territory. And there, there's, there seemed to be a decided reason that, like, oh, no, these people need to be stopped versus World War One is just, Hey, you're picking on my friend. Oh yeah, well that's my friend. And they kind of thought it would just be this brief, few brief skirmishes. You know, you know. I think it was even you know famously supposed to be over in a few months, and then just it became just this famously trench warfare and just yeah catastrophic loss of life. That well, uh, that was that was something that that I wanted to bring up. So World War One is kind of like this this perfect storm of. Old tactics and new technology. Exactly, the tactics had advanced, or the the technology had advanced so quickly that it outpaced the tactics used to try and mitigate the effects of those technologies. So loss of life is just insane. Right, we were better at killing than defending. Right, with with airplanes, uh, this is the first time machine guns are used, the first time tanks are used, uh, chemical weapons are being used for the first time, and so you know it's just it's like death and destruction on an unprecedented scale and you know basically until you know almost all of the major technological advancements that you see in world war ii have already been invented at this point you know with the exception obviously of the atom bomb but except for their their tactics are we're gonna sit on this line and just wait and maybe try and gain a foot today or an inch today and uh just terrible so the, so the numbers there, it's uh, an estimated 9 million uh, soldiers killed and 7 million civilians as a direct result of the war. But then you also followed it up with various genocides around the world and then the big 1918 flu pandemic with another uh, 50 to 100 million deaths across the world. So just numbers we today can't even comprehend if you're talking about that many. I mean, you're basically saying, you know, the equivalent of a third of the United States wiped out within a five-year period. What are we even talking yeah. about? It's, uh, I mean, not not since the, the plague, honestly, if you're talking about those kinds of casualties. Yeah, and when you think of it on a, on a percentage, right. you know, a percentage of world population, it's even even more insane right you're probably looking at is that five percent of the world at that time i mean i don't i don't know the world population in 1917 off the top of my head but okay no i don't either but that's what i was kind of right but my understanding is we hit one billion worldwide right around 1900 so right we probably weren't even at two billion yet so if you're talking about over 100 million yeah well, yeah, it, yeah just the fact that even even if it's a full percent that's that's insane and uh, yeah. it, it looks like it was easily that based on a uh, quick look at these at these numbers here. I wanted to just kind of also then briefly discuss Australia because we have not had Australia in our timeline yet. Oh, real quick. The Light Horse, the 10th Light Horse Regiment that the guys are a part of yes. in the movie, is uh, it's still around today. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so there's a uh, now it's like an armored cavalry regiment. But it's a cavalry regiment, and they still call themselves the 10th Light Horse, and they 
they are still in Western Australia and they can trace their lineage all the way back to 1914, which is the same the same time this movie came out. So I, I just thought that was kind of interesting. No, it, it is always kind of neat to see those things where they still try to make those connections to uh, past endeavors. And, and yeah, it's uh, neat. <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> So, uh, so Australia. So the uh, Aboriginal Australians were uh, first believed to arrive on the island of Australia forty to seventy thousand years ago, and the culture and traditions that that they have uh, are considered some of the oldest in human history, as far as you know, because they you know some of those still survive to today. And Europeans kind of came over the course of. Uh, a few hundred years here, but you know, there's the, the first landing is believed to be a, a Dutch guy in nine, or sorry, in 1606. Uh, Spanish explorers came through, more Dutch explorers came through. Basically, they were aware of it, but there wasn't an extensive colonization of it until the in 1770. James Cook basically said, "Hey, England, we should uh, we should probably start setting up a colony here on this island to be a good spot." And they do set up famously a penal colony. But I think I had always grown up hearing that, like, the whole island of Australia itself was set up as a penal colony, and that's not necessarily the case. There was there was still, quote-unquote, normal people. You know, non-criminals were still colonizing Australia, but yes, there was, yeah. there was, there was a, a penal colony aspect to that. So what's interesting, too, is how... Uh, they just kind of how they just kind of came together. So you have basically all these different colonies, but it wasn't like they were kind of, I guess, like in the U.S. where it had all the different states were kind of doing their own thing, all the different colonies there. Similarly in Australia, there wasn't like a coordinated network at first. It was just all the different colonies that kind of set up. But then they did, uh, they all kind of set up these separate parliamentary democracies and, you know, kind of th- through the 19th century. And they just kind of voted you know, at one point, uh, it looks like 1901, they just kind of voted to say, like, let's unite and became Australia. And so when you think about that happening in 1901, where you now have these British colonies united into calling themselves, you know, basically the nation of Australia. And then it's just 15 years later that they're then now fighting for the British as basically Australians. And then so what it talks about is this kind of whole event, World War One, and then even specifically the Gallipoli campaign is kind of one of the first things of australia and then also new zealand having national identities on the world stage which we just kind of take for granted now but that goes back to the events in this film yeah and it's it's kind of shown in a couple different ways in the movie so i have here in my notes i just wrote in quotes the empire needs you it was the uh the recruiting the recruiting guys that come to the race at the beginning of the movie, mm. that's their pitch is, oh, you know, the British Empire needs you to fight for Britain because it's World War One and, and we got to go we got to go fight the Austro-Hungarians and the Germans and the and the Turks. But then there's also a very clear kind of animosity going both ways between the Australian and New Zealand soldiers and the British commanders of their units, of course, which is uh, shown in a I thought a pretty funny way when they're in Cairo and uh, Frank and his buddies all buy donkeys so that they can ride their donkeys behind the two British officers riding their horses and, you know, mock them and talk in, you know, posh British accents. And they put little monocles in and basically say, look what buffoons these guys are. And then, you know, the British, you know, have the animosity going the other way. They're like, you know, all oh, these these Australian soldiers are just so uncivilized and unruly and but yeah, I, I thought that, that was kind of a, a an interesting dynamic between the uh, the Brits and the Australians and the uh, New Zealanders. That probably exists to a certain extent today as well. <laughs> oh, for sure, 
for sure. Because you know New Zealanders do uh, do not enjoy being mistaken for Australians, <laughs> right? And and the Brits probably still kind of turn their nose up at at both of them. Yeah. So yeah, that is kind of funny. I also thought it was interesting. You mentioned you know they were in Cairo. There was kind of their staging area before they go to Gallipoli, and I thought it was really neat to see them just kind of hanging out and basically just playing around and picnicking by the Sphinx and just this yeah. juxtaposition of, of course, especially us now in 2019 and a movie from 1981 about an event in 1914 and then they're in on these thousands of years old sphinx you just think of just this just the layers of human civilization that kind of are in that scene yeah an additional layer when they have their foot race to the pyramid when they say oh you know we're going to race to the pyramid and they both race to the pyramid and they climb to the top and they carve their name in the top, and oh. their name is being carved next to two soldiers' names from Napoleon's army oh, that's from right. when Napoleon was in Egypt. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. So, yes, a very, very good movie. I do want to talk about uh, Peter Weir. So, a director who, I would say he's one where you don't know his name unless you're really into movies. But I guarantee you've heard of a lot of his movies. So yes, G- Gallipoli, Gallipoli was a big one. Other ones that I have not seen, but I think I'd I'd kind of heard of in his early early career, Picnic and Hanging Rock and The Year of Living Dangerously are definitely two that mm-hmm. are on my radar, but I haven't seen yet. But then he gets into uh, Witness with Harrison Ford in 1985. Uh, one yep. of my favorite movies, Dead Poets Society, 1989 is Peter Weir. The Truman Show with uh, Jim Carrey, everyone's probably heard of. Yeah. And then and uh, listeners of the podcast will know, will maybe remember uh, Peter Weir from Master and Commander. Absolutely, yes. Master and Commander that we did do uh, last season was was also Peter Weir. So, uh, very successful director. And this movie is a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Definitely worth your time if you hadn't seen it. And again, I hadn't, I'd heard of it, but I hadn't seen it at all until uh, a couple years ago when again i kind of watched it uh, for this but uh, a little too early and we haven't mentioned yet that frank is played by mel gibson so this is uh one of the big movies from early in mel gibson's career yeah very young mel gibson i think he's like around my age maybe even younger um let's look that oh he's 25 he's 25 when this movie well, came you out go. so You're younger, younger than, you. than yeah. younger than me oh uh a couple other notes here when they're in the trenches getting ready to do the charge, the commander or the, the commanders of the of the, the different units that are getting ready to charge make their guys unload. And I, I'm not 100% sure why that was, but I can only imagine it was so that the ammo wasn't wasted being in the rifle laying out, you know, between the two trenches. Basically, huh. they just fixed bayonets and said, all right, you know, get out there. Don't take any ammo with you. And then uh, another uh, little side note that I have here, a very 80s soundtrack. Oh, yeah, true. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting, though, too, because you would be like, oh, you know, it's one of the worst decades for music holding up to the modern era. Because, oh, a 70s movie, usually the music holds up better. A 90s movie, 60s movie. But the 80s, sorry, the the soundtracks just don't hold up. But usually even like war movies that are made in the 80s, they'll at least have, you know, this like, you know, orchestral kind of soundtrack with, you know, these big swelling musical numbers to kind of, you know, give a lot of, you know, gravity to the situation. No, true. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, it's not universal. But like in this movie, you have like Mel Gibson running to, you know, save the life of him and his comrades. And then this like synthesized like as he's like running through this trench. And it's like, what? What even is that? 
Yeah. Um, oh, and I forgot to mention too. I did want to talk about we we kind of talked a little about them briefly. So this is the end of the Ottoman Empire, but it, it's significant because and again, I love anytime we can just get ancient things closer to us. And you you know you kind of talked about with the whole you know the way Britain kind of redrew the map you know last week, and then that kind of ties into this part of the world again this week, and how that still affects us today. But so the Ottoman Empire basically came to prominence and took over from the Byzantine Empire. But the Byzantine Empire was really just another name for the eastern half of the Roman Empire. So you could basically right. have the, the Roman Empire, who then evolves in the eastern half to the Byzantine Empire, and then in the 15th century. The Ottoman Empire evolves uh, from Anatolia, takes over Constantinople, renames it Istanbul, and basically that's in, you know in 1453 it looks like here, and then and that lasted the Ottoman Empire until World War One. So basically, yeah. from which is then succeeded by Turkey, which is still around today. Exactly, exactly. So you go from the Roman Empire to today, and you're basically just having a few different parties involved with uh, who's controlling this area. So it's. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I do just kind of find find that fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Uh, any other thoughts before we kind of just, I guess, uh, transition this in the next week? No, I think that covers it. Um, so, yes, we will be sticking with World War One for the next few weeks here. But uh, we will be looking at the 1962 Best Picture winner, Lawrence of Arabia, starring Peter O'Toole. I'm so excited. <laughs>